Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent, mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So let's start the show. Dr. Omalara Uemedimo is a business development and funding coach for women of color in healthcare and serial entrepreneur, growing two companies to multi-six figures in revenue in less than 18 months. During her entrepreneurial career as a pediatrician for over 15 years, researcher and professor for over a decade, she secured $2 million in grant funding and has led interprofessional teams to build and scare healthcare delivery and research programs to achieve health equity for marginalized youth and families. Her work has been defined by a passion for social justice, serving as an advocate and working as a global physician across sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. Given her expertise and success as an entrepreneur, Dr. Omalara went on to found Melanin and Medicine, a premier business development and funding coaching company to help support women of color in medicine to secure capital without incurring debt or diluting equity, to build and grow their own healthcare businesses committed to social impact. To date, Melanin and Medicine has helped over 200 women in medicine across her workshops, courses, and programs to pivot into their purpose recreate their healthcare careers on their own terms, build social impact businesses, and live more fulfilled and integrated lives. We talk about how and why she ended up here, why women of color would need to leave medicine, and how she helps physicians build a socially impactful healthcare company that can replace a physician income. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Omolara Uemedimo, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Brad. It's a pleasure. So tell us your origin story. How did you go from pediatrician, mild-mannered pediatrician, to melanin in medicine? Yeah, so I think, you know, ultimately I will say that it wasn't in the cards for me. I didn't think that that was going to be where I would land, but pretty much I wanted to be a pediatrician since I was five. I'm also the daughter of Nigerian immigrants and they only allow us, a good Nigerian child only has three options for their job, one of them being a doctor. What is it, doctor, lawyer, engineer? Pretty much, yes. (laughs) So my origin story, grew up initially in Brooklyn, we moved to Queens. And during that time, I was very interested in the fact that I would go back and forth to Nigeria with my parents and just seeing cousins who were exactly like me in one way, but then had completely different 
lifestyle and just thinking about kind of the inequity. And so justice, inequity, that was always something from very young that attracted me. And I ended up deciding to focus my work on global health. And that was what brought me into medicine and where I found my passion. And so even from college, I started doing trips overseas and then during residency, continued to figure out ways to do that until finally after residency, I decided to live in Malawi and work there and ultimately thought that was going to be the rest of my life. Ultimately, what I found, I think, which is interesting, was that during this clinical time, I found that there were so many systemic issues, just in terms of like, I could only do so much. And that really irritated me as a physician, like with the system was kind of running as it's designed, quote unquote, and I could only work in that bubble. And so my work there was really about starting and scaling up pediatric HIV programs Ended up doing that, but didn't know exactly what I was doing. So I came back to America to do an MPH, learned, got wrestled into academia and became a physician researcher, ended up being recruited to do global health at one of our institutions here on Long Island and pretty much started a global health program. But I would say why melanin in medicine was because I was an associate professor teaching public health. I was the program director for our global health program. I was seeing patients, (laughs) mostly patients with adverse social determinants of health. I was running two large research programs and basically I got burnt out. Where was the last place you were working? And I'm asked just because we're going to end up playing the name game after the interview. (laughs) Yeah. So I was at Northwell Health. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And so ultimately during that time, I got Um, pretty burnt out. And I decided to take a step back from clinical just to give myself some room. But because I wasn't in the space where I would ever just sit down in May of 2019, ended up hospitalized. I lost the ability to walk in about a week. I went from clumsiness to I couldn't move my right, right side. And I found out about a week later that I had a cerebellar brain lesion and I had multiple sclerosis. So that was pretty much a wake up call, especially since I had brought my computer to the hospital and really understanding how much work defined me. And I couldn't do the work. Actually, I became nauseous and dizzy anytime I tried to open my computer. So I couldn't do my work. I was like, even though I can't walk, I can still try to do my work. And I ended up going on leave. My work was distributed to five different people and I had to do a life rehab. My new neurologist said, if you continue, I will continue to see you and I don't know what your life will look like. So that was a wake up call. And what happened for Melanin Medicine was I started it during my physical and life rehab. I started it because I was just wondering, why did I get multiple sclerosis? I don't understand. And what I found was that actually Black women and I think BIPOC healthcare professionals just had this added layer of weathering allostatic load and that chronic stress that actually can cause dysregulation of our immune systems, our cardiovascular systems at a much higher level. And so ultimately I became obsessed on a mission to figure out how we prevent more health professionals, specifically Black women, physicians, to not get on that road and end up with a mental or physical health breakdown. And that was the origin of of melanin and medicine. So what are you doing at melanin and medicine? 
you know, my business is a toddler, even though we've been pretty successful in terms of now being a multi-six-figure company, I think one of the things that we did was really shift with our clients. Initially, we focused on work-life integration and helping them through their careers to put boundaries and start to remove some of the stress and the overworking that we learn and start to unlearn that. But then a lot of them started identifying that, hey, you know, even though I'm doing all of this, I'm just not comfortable in terms of how medicine is being practiced in this space and how particularly for communities that I want to serve. And I think I could do it better. I think I can either support organizations to shift that or I can create new spaces where we can do this better. And I have a practice, Strong Children Wellness is my other baby, my other business, which is a practice where we actually embed primary care into community-based organizations. And we work with them to basically bring care to psychosocially complex kids and families. So they knew that I had done this. And so they were like, how do I do it? And so then I was kind of like, oh, wait, you want me to show you how to start a business? (laughs) And particularly a business that serves underserved populations, which, you know, is hard, of course, given kind of reimbursement, Medicaid, and the fact that kids unfortunately, in the American system are not valued. And so ultimately, that became my mission. And we shifted from work-life integration, which we still have support, because I think that's really important, even in entrepreneurship, but now shifting to help them develop their business. And then because there's such an inequity in terms of Black women having to use their own funds, I would think it's almost two-thirds of Black own businesses bootstrap versus one-sixth of the general businesses bootstrap, solely bootstrap. So we wanted to help them figure out how to get funding as well. Wait, wait. So there's a venture capital arm to Melanin and Medicine as well? No. So that's the thing. We, for service-based businesses, usually a lot of times, unless there's a tech or some place where they can really scale to the hundreds of millions, right? those aren't as attractive to angel investors or VC. And also with the educational debt, a lot of our women don't want to take out loans. And so so Strong Children Wellness, we actually were able to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars through grants and through social impact awards and investments by just creating a pipeline and being able to make sure that we consistently built our network of funders and would routinely use that as cash injections to support us through it. So using that model of getting funds that don't dilute your equity or mess up your credit has been a model that I was like, oh, you don't know how to do this. (laughs) Let's help you learn how to write grants, develop relationships with funders, figure out how to build that network and bring in that additional funding so that you don't end up failing before you start. Well, our our next questions that we talked about before, we're (laughs) going to be like, how do you define entrepreneurship and what is social entrepreneurship? But I think you just clearly defined what social entrepreneurship is, right? It's entrepreneurship that has social impact, but it sounds like the end goal, oftentimes money is the driving force, right? Like how is this going to make cash flow, right? How are we going to build equity? But with this, it sounds more like, How are we going to serve the most people and yet still have it? (laughs) Because it's not going to, like it says, you're not going to help anybody if you're out of business. Correct. Correct. But you're still trying to replace a physician income. So can social entrepreneurship really do that? 
Yes, so it can. And there's, I think one of the things that is really important in this entrepreneurship journey has been just being able to be extremely clear on your mission for both your people to get to you, partners to get to you, as well as funders to get to you. And so I think one of the things that I've learned is that the riches are in the niches in a way, like in terms of being able to say that this is what we do for this specific population. It allowed us to be able to, one, make sure that we could expand our audience through partnerships. So for us, those were schools, those were specific organizations that served our population and it allowed for us to grow really and not have to put so much money into marketing um, because of the fact that we were very specific and knew the, the landscape or learned the landscape, I should say. The other thing that I think is really important as well is just making sure that we're thinking boldly about we don't have to make those, should I hire now? Can I hire now? Because you have this consistent amount of runway that you're building with these grant funds. So it allows for you to build things the right way and build the team so you can get the transformational results and then allow for more funding to come in and more market growth faster. And I think that's one of the things we know about eight out of 10 Black-owned businesses in 18 months. And most times it's because of that shift of not having the money to be able to either market the way that they needed to, build the team that the way that they needed to. And so really having that lump sum is important. Sustainability and scale is really just around, I like to think of places like Tom's and Bombas and all of these like different kind of social entrepreneurs who you know exactly what they do and people buy from them because they are committed to that mission. And you can also think of different ways. Some people have it as an integrated business model. There's embedded, integrated, and I'm trying to remember the other one there is, but there are different models, external. So basically the embedded is more so enterprise and social program is all in one. So that's where your business is created to serve the clients who are affected. Or you have the integrated, which is like, we provide medical services, but then we integrate with the social programs or partners, a community organization who has those clients. And so we're working together in conjunction. And then you have the external where they're completely separate. And this is just like a funding mechanism to go. You get shoes and you get shoes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and we know how successful those places are. Or you get socks and you get socks. Actually, I don't even know what Bombas, what their social. Oh my gosh, Bombas is awesome. They do socks. And then basically for everyone you buy, they give one to a homeless shelter. And that fits so nicely with Tom's. Although you don't need <laughs> socks when you're wearing. What are some of the social issues that some of your clients have tackled? Yeah, so a few things. I have one client right now who is focusing on the fact that PDF, like most, I think it's, I forget the number. She's so good. She was actually just on my podcast, but I think it's about 80%, 80% of children don't get urgent care or emergency care in settings where there are pediatricians, right? Or pediatric trained physicians. And it actually can lead to really horrible outcomes for those kids. And so she actually is working as a consultant and vendor. So she sometimes does just vendor of her services or helps them with their strategy to rebuild for adult urgent centers or adult care centers to help them build in strategically and 
I guess, more streamlined pediatric services so that they're able to serve kids, but also has a cultural component where she focuses on making sure that those who are black and brown, making sure that it's not only just here's the pediatric services, but that they're culturally responsive because those are the kids that tend to have the least health outcomes. I have another woman who is actually creating a practice hub that is inside of church and she wants to multiply those, but basically working with churches because she wants to be able to make sure that access to care is right there for them, especially for the elderly. So that is pretty cool. I have another one who is working on, and she's working on an app. So we're actually working together around pitch decks because we're like, okay, this is totally VC angel. So I will help some because I, I do have that experience. I will help around that but it's not my same, but she actually is working on a platform to provide integrated MFM services for OBGYN practices because MFMs, maternal fetal medicine specialists are not a plethora and definitely not in underserved areas. So that's a little take on some of the clients, if that makes sense. If we had someone who has been inspired by listening or came in with an idea, but they didn't think it was possible. Mm -hmm. Where would you recommend that that person start? Other than hire a coach, melaninandmedicine.com, right? Yes, that's fine. But we have, yes. But I think one of the things that we try to do, let's say our baseline, because we have these three tiers, but our baseline is I have a thought and an idea. I don't have a business model. I don't have anything, but this is what I want to do. And so usually what we'll start with is, what is their innovation or their unique value add? And so what that starts with is kind of what exists, what's the solution, and not so much what's the solution, but why I think is really important. Why does this need to be here? Because as a social entrepreneur and business, um, purpose-led business, that's extremely important. And that's probably one of your most distinguishing, most compelling parts of getting funding. I was just on, I'm in an accelerator that also gave us funding for our practice. And I was just on with a founder who was talking about his, his company, which got VC funding. And he talked about how one of the investors was like, just with that story, we would have funded you. You didn't need to be in the accelerator. We would have funded you just with that story. And it was compelling about opioid addiction. And I think it's really important for you to get in the weeds, not just about what it is, but why you. That's extremely important. So the connecting the purpose, not just the value out of the solution, but then your purpose, your reason why is really important too, to establish that. And then what we talk about is your client transformation framework, which is really about how do you get the client from point A, which is like, oh my God, life is horrible, to point B, and what are the distinct features and how is that different from the usual solutions that client would take on? And then the last thing that I usually focus on is helping them to think about the roadmap. So what we do together is usually we'll work on who are the partners. I'm very honestly always thinking about partner models, particularly because um, not so much in terms of the partner as in co-founders or things like that, but more when we think about social entrepreneurship, we know that collaboration allows for a greater product. And so always thinking about, okay, who is, who's in the community that could support this? Or what is the thing that would level this up that there's an organization who provides that kind of service? Because a lot of times funders really want to see how this is going to truly 
be differentiating and um, potentially scalable because nothing like it exists. So those are parts of the part parts of the initial things that I want them to wrap around before we get to like business models and things like that. So you mentioned partners, and I just actually heard a phrase on a different podcast. It was a real estate podcast because I'm a physician, so I have to listen to real estate podcasts, right? It's like <laughs> okay. whatever thing. And they said not how, but who, right? So like. I need to accomplish X. How do I accomplish X? That's not the right question. The right question is who knows how to accomplish X? Identify that person and get them to help get you through that thing. So not how, but who. So that's exactly what you're saying, right? Create partnerships. Like I know how to do this. You know how to do that. Great. Let's do it together. And you're more likely to, I think social interaction. That's one thing that the pandemic has taught us is when you cut people off from social interaction there, mental health goes down the tube. So, you know, this creates more synergies, more social interactions. It becomes a more enjoyable experience. You know, if you get stuck on something, you've got your partner there that's able to get you through. It sounds like for so many reasons that building that network and that partnership is helpful. Yeah, honestly, it's always like one of our questions, partnerships. And then the other big one that we are very much thinking about is also at the end, it has to make money. So we have to really think through this business model in terms of like, how, what do we think? Who do we think are the people who have the money to do this? Like for example, one of my clients, she wants to do student mentoring. And initially when she came in, she was talking about, okay, I'm going to do student mentoring. You know, I want to do one-on-one for these kids, particularly into health fields to go black and brown children to go into medicine and to support them around the process and everything. And I was like, they won't be able to afford the time, (laughs) like the students themselves. So how do we partner with schools and make sure that we can, you can partner and find out because in order to get that capacity, you're going to need sub coaches. You're going to need people to really be able to do that. And so just having them up level the idea to really think through the business model of who can pay for it, How can we make sure that this can grow, not just bring value, but how can this grow and how can we make sure we have a really substantial MVP, minimum viable product that can get results quickly so that then we can present that to funders to be able to continue to invest. When we were talking before the show, you had mentioned the word safe in terms of some of your clients, women of color, practicing medicine, they haven't been safe at work. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it's actually very, a little emotional for me too. I think one of the things that is particularly important that has been, it has been difficult in medicine has been the idea of having to promote health while you feel isolated, persecuted, devalued, dismissed, like having to kind of have that conflict. And so what I would say about safety is the fact that a lot of women don't feel like they're able to be themselves in most healthcare spaces or institutions as a provider or as a patient. And what that looks like is really the idea that constantly there are doubts about your capabilities, doubts about whether or not you belong there, doubts about your value, and also slights around kind of things like wage discrimination, promotion, and it just feels like you're on a hamster wheel. I think one of the things that are, there's covert and overt racism, right? But covert really a lot of times looks like not being invited to something that you are already, that people know is your cup of 
tea in your specific space or not being considered around specific ventures that you've been working extremely hard on. And a lot of times the lack of safety, I think, is the idea for them that many times if they speak up or if they ask a question, a lot of times that's been perceived as aggressive or angry due to a lot of socialization historically for Black women. And so ultimately many of us are silent so that we can continue. But like I talked about weathering, that causes a lot of stress when you're not able to fully express your emotions or your needs in spaces and not feel like you'll be persecuted for for that. And to the audience, I apologize because I think my question might've come off as a bit of a non sequitur. Like how did we get from A to B? And I should have prefaced it with some of the reasons that your clients have approached you to help them is because they haven't been safe at work. That's the lead in. And so this, you've been able to equip them with the tools to operate in places that are, that actually there, it's their space. Yes. It's now their company. I will say though, that some of them, really the spaces that they want to occupy are consulting. Like I have another client who focuses on leadership coaching and is really working on helping women negotiate women of color. And now initially was doing it externally, but now wants to do that work and contract with organizations to do that internally. And so there's this play where they want to either help create new spaces or just transform existing spaces. So it can be either or, but the goal is to allow for all of us to feel free when we practice medicine and feel like you're not constrained or that you don't feel like, why am I still doing this? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, is it worth it is the question. <laughs> but rather than being an employee in that space, you're then being brought in as an outside consultant where there the company is then saying, please help me. So they're looking to you for your expertise. And that just sounds like a much safer and healthier place to be. So how is that the journey of entrepreneurship going to be different for a woman of color in medicine than (sighs) than someone who looks like me? Yes, it's a little different. It's interesting because I love talking about the funding piece as well, but in terms of entrepreneurship, because I think they're so inextricably linked. So entrepreneurship looks a little bit different, one, in terms of just starting, right? I think our networks are limited in terms of both capital and also social networks and that have the gravitas to maybe be able to like either bring in more funds to allow for it to have more runway. I think that's one space. I think the second big space is a lot of times what we're focused on as women of color and the communities that we want to serve, oftentimes it's difficult to find people who are truly invested in those communities and feel confident in in being able to fund that or being able to partner with you. So I think about corporate sponsorships. I think about those things as well. And the one thing that I remember reading and then hearing a lot from the National Women's Business Council, which is a governmental entity, but I remember hearing that women a lot of times are given what we call when they're doing pitches or talking to people to fund, they are given loss questions and men are often 
if they're pitching the same thing given gain questions. And so what I mean by that is usually they'll ask women, okay, these are the potential challenges. How are you going to navigate that? While a lot of times men are being asked, so tell me about your strategic vision for the next three to five years. And so you can imagine the dynamic of how that now (laughs) presents to funders and that's a big issue. And then of course, I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that racism is huge and it's a and it exists in every fiber and pore of this country and the goal is to potentially be able to eliminate it but there is always a specific amongst different people there's a specific ideation that black people maybe they're not equipped to do this women they're not as equipped to do this so the sexism and intersectionality of racism is a double whammy for women of color We already discussed melanin and medicine. Yes. But tell us about your online presence, right? Tell us about your podcast, about, and then where we can find you. Online presence. So my favorite platform is Twitter. That's where you'll get the raw unadulterated (laughs) at Dr. Omolara on Twitter. That is my first platform. But really, we have a few spaces. We're on all of the platforms, of course, Melanin Medicine Co. on Instagram, and Melanin Medicine Co, Melanin Medco on Twitter, but we have a Facebook group. That Facebook group I started in the midst in the I think a month after I got out the hospital in 2019. So you picked your laptop back up and you're like, what work can I do? <laughs> I couldn't do work, so I was like, okay, Facebook group. I don't know. I don't know. So instead of doom scrolling like everybody else does, <laughs> you started a business. Okay. No, I was going to have a business. I started it because I was in this, I told you, black hole about weathering. And I was like, oh, I want to like make sure more black women know about stop killing yourselves through stress and everything. So I wanted to create a space for us to talk about it. And then as I was doing that, it grew like in one week, it was 40. And then two weeks later, it was 400. And I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) I didn't know. So I just started talking about things that I was learning and then some people told their friends, but they weren't on Facebook. So I started a podcast. So I started a podcast and it was only until people started asking, Ooh, can you talk to me about this? Or can you help me? This is what I'm going through. Initially I was like, no, I'm a pediatrician. I don't understand. And then I was like, after getting it more and more, I was like, Oh, okay. People think. So that that January, 2020 was when I started our first little 12-week class on getting back to yourself and work-life integration. And then we just expanded into a community. So we have a Facebook group called Melanin Medicine Collective, and you can catch us on all the spaces. The best place for all of our links is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Melanin Medicine Co. I love it. Dr. Omolara Uemedimo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is a pleasure. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.